She's calling you to the most simple form of the Christian life. Gather together. Submit to the teaching of God's word. Enjoy fellowship and communion and devote yourselves to prayer. And that is the means by which the gospel will keep advancing. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part three of Shipwrecks and Snake Bites from Pastor Paul Twist. The book of Acts is replete with suffering. Early on, we're shown the murder of Stephen, an early church deacon stoned to death by haters of Christianity. Saul of Tarsus, before he was the Apostle Paul, watched Stephen die and then set out to Damascus to punish believers there. The Lord Jesus met him on that road, and shortly thereafter, Paul, the Christian apostle, sets out on a productive life of suffering. Here's part three of Shipwrecks and Snake Bites. Remember, Acts is a two-volume work, one continuous story, and the common consensus as we read Acts is that Luke has made particular efforts to present the ministry of Peter in the first half of the book and the ministry of Paul, in the second half of the book, in such a way that their lives mirror the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. So if you were to sit down and read all the way through Acts, it is entirely appropriate that you read many passages thinking, huh, that sounds a lot like Jesus. That's what Luke is trying to do. I wonder even if you noticed in our text this evening how many allusions there were to things that Jesus had done. It begins, perhaps, when Paul gives his speech and he says to them in verse 22, there'll be no loss of life among you, take heart. And then he goes on and says, not a hair from your head will fall. There won't be one hair that falls from your head in verse 34. This is a quotation from Luke's gospel when Jesus says the same words to his disciples when he predicts future trouble for them. Not a hair will perish from the head of any of you, says Jesus. And then Paul gives thanks and he breaks bread and he eats with these men. And the way in which Luke writes this story is strangely evocative of at least two different meals in Luke's gospel. And the commentators go back and forth. Did Luke mean to present this as a communion meal that last supper that Jesus had when he broke bread and he gave thanks. The difficulty with that is that Paul is having bread with pagan sailors and the communion meal would be for the believing community. Perhaps more instructive is to note that Paul gave thanks, he broke the bread, many people were fed. Luke draws particular attention to the number, 276 in all. So much so that at the end, they had leftovers. They threw the wheat overboard. And I think it's right that this seems to echo when Jesus fed a multitude. When Paul is on the island of Malta, he has a ministry with Publius' father, who is laying sick with a fever. Paul visits him. He prays. He puts his hand on him. The man is healed. And then many from the town come. 
which is exactly the way Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4 with Simon's mother. Now, what's the point of all of this? On one level, it is simply to make the, the point that these men are carrying on where Jesus left off. They're picking up the baton and they're carrying on with Jesus' ministry. Back in chapter 1, Jesus commissions the witnesses. A witness in the book of Acts is someone who has seen the risen Lord Jesus. And they are to simply do what he has been doing. They've seen him, now they're to go and do likewise. And with all of the allusions through the book of Acts back to Luke's gospel, Luke is continuously making the point, these apostles are doing nothing different to that which Jesus did. They're just carrying on his ministry. But it actually goes a bit further than that. See, if you really start to probe the connections that Luke makes, what you see is that he places a particular emphasis on one portion of Jesus' life. He keeps drawing from one portion in particular, and that is Jesus' passion. Luke is particularly keen to show that the apostles are experiencing the same kind of suffering as the Lord Jesus. And that is exactly the means by which the gospel is spreading in the book of Acts. One commentator says, you cannot understand the book of Acts. It makes no sense without the theme of suffering. It is suffering that causes the gospel to go out. Think back to to Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, as he is stoned. That is the catalyst that causes the gospel to spread beyond Jerusalem. And in fact, when you really probe those relationships, you see that what Luke is doing is he, in turn, is echoing the ministry of the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. Luke is particularly keen to show us Jesus in the light of the suffering servant. This is him, says Luke. He has come to be pierced for our transgressions. And then the apostles come and Jesus ascends. He is no longer here with us bodily. The apostles are now it. They're carrying the baton. And Luke says it's no different with them. They also must suffer, not to complete some kind of incomplete work of the Lord Jesus, but to carry on the progression of the gospel. And there's echoes of it even here in these last two chapters. It's telling that the the narrative begins with this verb deliver or handed over, verse 1 of chapter 27. To be handed over in Luke's gospel is a telling echo back to the servant song of Isaiah 53, who was handed over. It's a verb that occurs over and over again in the reference to the suffering servant. And then in 28, Paul recounts his story and he uses that same verb again. Even the logic of the narrative parallels the logic of the servant. This is why Paul concludes with the preaching of Isaiah 6. Think about just how curious that is. The book of Acts ends with the beginning of the book of Isaiah. And Paul is saying Isaiah's mission was to preach salvation to the Jews. Chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet sees the Lord. And it's upon seeing the Lord that he acknowledges his sin. And upon acknowledgement of his sin, he confesses his utter filthiness. And the Lord cleanses him. And then he commissions him to go and proclaim salvation. That one chapter in Isaiah is a microcosm of the whole book. 
And as you know, the prophet goes out, but the Jews won't hear. Their hearts are hard. Their eyes are shut. Their ears are stopped. They're called the servant, but they won't be the servant. And so then God's chosen servant comes. In the second half of the book, because the nation of Israel would not respond to the gospel, God's chosen servant comes. And he had no sin. And he had no form or majesty that we should esteem him. He grew up before us like a, like a sap, and yet he was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. And in his ministry, he becomes the light first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so successful is it that by the end of the book of Isaiah, as the prophet looks forward, he says, all the nations are coming. The mission of the servant worked. And then we fast forward to Luke's gospel. And now we see all of that in real life time. The Son of God come bodily in the flesh to walk amongst sinners, to walk amongst his people, and they will not hear him. They will not hear him. Indeed, they kill him. And the risen Lord Jesus passes on that mission to the apostles. It's not a different mission that they inherit. God's logic doesn't change when the apostles pick up the baton. It carries on with the same ministry. This is why Paul preaches to the Jews and the Gentiles over and over in the book of Acts. Watch what he does. He goes to the Jews first, to the synagogues. They will not hear him. And so he turns to the Gentiles and they receive the message. And the end of the book of Acts is an ironic reversal the Jews have put this man on trial. His innocence is emphatically declared. And now with the preaching of Isaiah 6, he puts the Jews on trial. And he says, you haven't listened. And so the, now the narrative goes out to the Gentiles. And that's how the book ends. Now again, there's instruction for us in that simple observation. Think about the abrupt ending of the book of Acts. So many people comment on the fact that, that Luke ends so abruptly. And there is a sense when you read it that you're just on the edge of a cliff and you haven't really been let down gently. There's certainly no happy ever after in this book. It just ends with this accusatory sermon to the Jews. And then he says, it's going to go to the Gentiles. And here we sit, having received salvation. One thing I always say is that anywhere in the book of Acts, your application can be simply to praise God for this narrative. Because you wouldn't be here today if the gospel hadn't gone to the ends of the earth. But with it comes a challenge. With it comes a responsibility. Again, not that we are in any sense apostles. The apostolic office has ended. Nor are we all called to be preachers but we are all disciples of the risen Lord Jesus. And in Acts 20, Paul handed over the baton yet again to the Ephesian elders. Remember back in Acts 20, Paul says, you guys have got this church now, I have to go. And think about the particular way in which he does that handover. He looks back and he says, this is how I was with you. And he etches out a ministry of servanthood. And then he looks forward and he says, I don't know what lies ahead of me except for suffering. And so we have both prongs of the servant's ministry, servanthood and suffering, very much a part of who Paul is, and he hands it on 
to the church in Ephesus. The implication being, this should now be your manner of ministry. And as we sit here tonight, we must take seriously the paradigm that the book of Acts has forged for us. We are to be the fragrance of Christ to one another and to a watching world. But understand, you will be no fragrance of Christ if you carry the gospel message with pride. You will not be the fragrance of Christ if you speak the truth in a posture of the utmost pride and arrogance. If you are to speak the gospel of the Lord Jesus, you have to look like him. If you want your words to have weight, then you need to be a servant just like he was. The Lord has not entrusted to us a different kind of ministry. He has not changed the logic halfway through the story. He gives to us the same responsibility as was given to the apostles, which is to be servants, to pursue humility at all costs, knowing that that is the way in which God works through humble servants. And you need to take seriously the reality that suffering may come as part of your gospel ministry. You need to fight against every inclination of the flesh to prioritize comfort in your life because it doesn't do the gospel any good service. To prioritize comfort flies in the face of the message that we have received. The gospel is the priority and God is pleased to use humble servants who acknowledge the responsibility that we have which may include suffering. And when that is what our life looks like, then we carry on this drama. When this book ends abruptly, there is an invitation that we would take up the baton. Just like the disciples, we would do what they were doing. One more level of context, and time is beating us. We've seen the, the cultural context of this narrative, which is one that teaches us that Paul was innocent and with his innocence came a validation of the gospel itself. It is a tremendously encouraging narrative to simply see that the gospel is doing exactly what Jesus said it would do. We've considered the broader scriptural context and acknowledged that it comes with a responsibility to be humble servants who take seriously the possibility of suffering for the sake of the gospel. The third context that I would consider is what I call the applicational context, partly because I don't know what else to call it. But it is to really get at that question for a third time, what are we to do with this narrative? You might argue, you still haven't told us, what am I to do? What do we do? I understand that there's great encouragement here, and I understand the responsibility that it is to be a Christian, but what am I to do? In response to this narrative, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, until Christ returns, what do I do? And to answer that question, we have to make some observations from the, the broader narrative that is the book of Acts. You see, it is a mistake that we make often to try and draw a straight line from New Testament narrative, Old Testament narrative, to our situation. We want to make that one-to-one -one application. 
And so what we'll often do is, is look in the narrative, we see what we see, and we decide that that is supposed to form a norm in my life. Sadly, that's often the way we read narrative. And my rule of thumb that I give to everyone about narrative is that narrative isn't normative. Narrative isn't normative. Just because you see it in the narrative, that doesn't mean that it should become the norm for your life. Just think about that with me. If that's the way that you read the book of Acts, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. Very early on, you're going to start searching for your own Pentecost experience. Then as you move through the book, you're going to start thinking that you're a failure unless you have a healing ministry. And then towards the end, you're really in hot water because now you need to go find a shipwreck and a snake bite. Narrative isn't normative. So how do we make application, especially from the book of Acts, and I would encourage you to pay particular attention again to the believing community. Not so much about the apostles because we know that we're not them. They had a particular job description that we don't have. But there's a crowd. There's a gathering crowd of believers in the book of Acts. What are they doing? How are they behaving? And is there anything in particular that receives an accent from Luke repetitively, over and over? Is he drawing attention to something that the believing community is doing in the book of Acts over and over again? If so, might that be the message that he wants to impress upon us? And what we find is the answer is yes. In the book of Acts, we see that the, the believers are constantly coming together. They're submitting themselves to the teaching of God's word. They're enjoying fellowship with one another. They're taking communion, literally sharing a meal together. And they give themselves to much prayer. And that's it. The blueprint that Luke gives to us for the church is that we would devote ourselves to coming together. And when we do, we would make sure that this book is involved, that we are submitting to the teaching of God's word, that we are pursuing as an absolute priority fellowship, that we understand the value of communion in a formal sense, but then more generally of enjoying a meal with one another. And that we would not neglect prayer, but we would devote ourselves to prayer. And that is the way in which the gospel is advancing. Luke, the Bible, God himself, he's not calling you to some strange, mysterious form of Christianity. He's not calling you to live extravagant lives. He's not calling you to do anything outrageous. He's calling you to the most simple form of the Christian life. Gather together. Submit to the teaching of God's word. Enjoy fellowship and communion and devote yourselves to prayer. And that is the means by which the gospel will keep advancing. I tell often the story of, of our experience in a very, very small church back home that had 15 believers in it. And when we left, it was down now to 13. And we meet every Sunday and there's no need to fill out an attendance card. Because you can look around and see who's missing. And I guarantee you, if you couldn't make it, someone's following up with you that week. Not even necessarily the pastor, someone in that group just checking in to see if you're okay. 
and on Tuesday night is the prayer meeting, and, and I would walk there, and the rain is fall, falling horizontally, and you arrive, and you're soaked, and there's six other people there in the room, and you pray together on your knees for an hour, and I'll tell you, it is easy to get despondent in a situation like that. You can very quickly grow discouraged. And the message that I would continually remind myself of is these are the things to which the Lord has called us. And in his wisdom, this is his plan for the gospel to keep advancing. This is it. There's no hidden formula. It is a very simple form of Christianity to which the Lord has called you. And as the book of Acts ends in this way, the charge that Luke would give us is to keep doing as the Christians have done for 2,000 years of the church's history and not to do something else, to prioritize our being together around the word, fellowship, communion, and prayer, and to do it over and over and over until the Lord Jesus comes again, knowing, trusting, and delighting in the fact that this is God's ordained plan for the church. And this is how the gospel will keep advancing. Let's pray now to that end. Father, we praise you this evening for the wonderful narrative that we have that tells of the birth of your church. We praise you for these last two chapters. What a wonderful narrative that shows us of Paul's innocence and with it, the validation of the gospel message itself. We rejoice this evening to see how the gospel truly did go to the ends of the earth. There was nothing that could thwart the advancement of the gospel. Father, we see that it comes as part of a paradigm that those whom you call into gospel ministry, gospel life, are to be servants humble servants willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. And we see that the manner in which the gospel goes forth is a very simple Christianity. The believers coming together, devoting themselves to the teaching of your word, fellowship, communion, and prayer. And Lord, we confess how readily we can neglect such simple responsibilities. How readily we can seek to prioritize other things in our life, failing to see that we have been called into the most glorious ministry on earth, that we are the most privileged of all people, that we get to meet together, to sit under your word, to fellowship and pray to the living God as humble servants, and that that would be the means by which the gospel advances. We thank you, and we do ask that you would work in our hearts so that we would all be found faithful ministers of the gospel, faithful believers in Christ, doing what we've been called to do, diligently pursuing the gathering of the saints and all that goes with it. And every time, Lord, let us not take it lightly, but I do pray that in a wonderful way we would feel the weight of what you're doing in the local church. And we'll do it until Christ returns. We pray these things and we commit ourselves to you in his name. Amen. 
You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has taught the book of Acts with many parallels between the suffering way of Christ and the early apostles. We see a common thread, suffering. As followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer, and we can be sure God always has a purpose for His glory and our good. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're in the area, remember you're always invited to be part of the worship service at Bethany Bible Church on Sundays at 10.30 a.m., located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Join us tomorrow. It's a new two-part series titled Faith and Poverty. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.